Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once, I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more on a new phase of the journey, one that will examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, falling action, and resolution of the endings to each of his novels, and break it down by character character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'll also weigh in on whether or not I happen to personally like the ending, and today I'm here to discuss the ending of The Song of Susanna. And everyone, welcome back to the Stephen King cast, and for first-time listeners, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Um, If you are uh, just tuning in for the first time, there are quite a few episodes um, that you can uh, peruse if you want some deep dives into the, the the books and movies of Stephen King. There are literally hundreds of episodes for you to explore, and I would recommend going back. You can start the journey with Carrie onward, or you can pick and choose from the novels that you really want to dive into. So welcome and enjoy. Today, like I said, I'll be talking about the ending of The Song of Susanna. Uh, But first, I would like to listen to some uh, listener emails. And you, too, can write in. All you have to do is write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Up first, we have John who writes, Hello, constant reader. I hope all is well. Sorry to bother you. It's no bother. But I was just curious about a Billy Summers episode. I know you've been doing all of his endings, which I love. I, for one, don't think he's bad at endings. That reputation is wildly unfair. I can't wait to hear what you think about the Kingisms in the novel. Also, is Billy Summers a gunslinger? No, no, he's not. Anyway, may you have long days and pleasant nights. Thank you, Cy. John. John, uh, I apologize. I kind of did a Billy Summers episode two episodes ago, it, but it was so dismissive of Billy Summers. It is definitely not um, anywhere near the quality of the type of analyses that I used to do um, when I was analyzing each of his books in great detail. Um, I just did not do that for Billy Summers because I was not a massive fan of Billy Summers as I was reading and I was kind of exasperated as I read it so I was not uh, taking a lot of notes and I wasn't uh, I I wasn't having a, a dialogue uh, a mental dialogue with the text uh, so I there's nothing like that 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 I could do at this time years from now maybe I'll revisit Billy Summers Um, but right now I don't necessarily have plans Raquel writes hello there my name is Raquel or Rachel in English so Rachel hello and I'm from Brazil first of all I'm sorry if I make mistakes not my first language no worries don't ever apologize Well, like yourself, I'm a big Stephen King fan since I was 13 or 14 years old. He is not very well known around here, and I first started reading his works because I was a fan of Sidney Sheldon, and his books were right there in the shelf, and I got a bit curious. And oh man, was I hooked from the start, just like I am with your podcast. Oh, thank you, Rachel. The thing I loved about your podcast is that it's so analytical. You went really deep in your analysis, and I've never heard anyone do that. A few podcasts or other Stephen King specials is always about the same books and the same content. I really enjoyed the Stephen Kingisms. I've noticed that for a few years already, there are some curious coincidences. Um, A part, of course, the Stephen King multiverse, really. So congratulations on your perceptions. They're amazing. Started listening from episode one. Right now I'm on episode 17. Some episodes don't exist anymore. I couldn't download, but the ones I did, I absolutely loved. Huh. 
I'll if anyone finds episodes that aren't working, please let me know because I'll get on Podbean about that. But every episode should work. They absolutely should. So, Rachel, let me know the episodes that you are having problems with. And that goes out to anyone. If you're having problems, let me know. I have a few ideas. I'm sorry. Maybe the text is getting a bit long, but if I could write them here, it would be great. When you start the podcast and read the book plot, the music is a little loud. I'm so sorry. I've gotten that feedback. Um, I have changed it. I have changed in the future. Funny, even if we have different points of view about the books, um, yet I, I just really enjoy listening. Like, for example, Cujo. I remember when I read it, I liked it so much. I got it was a really mean book. Well, that tells you something about me, LOL. And I also, uh, Jerusalem's Lot, I read almost 20 years ago. I was a teen and actually I didn't like it at all. Maybe now, who knows, I'll give it a try again. Also, another thing I'm looking forward to is listening to my favorite books. My favorite books are never brought up anywhere, although I like Carrie or The Shining and even The Dark Tower. I like a million times more The Tommyknockers, The Talisman, or Under the Dome, books that no one really talks about. I've read all the Stephen King novellas, sometimes more than uh, once, not the short stories though yet. I'm really looking forward to listening to the rest of the episode. I understand the podcast um, have over 300 episodes, but that's okay. Your podcast is great. Thanks again, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel, for writing in. Okay, uh, Tom writes, Hi, I don't usually think of getting in touch about this sort of thing, but I just listened to the episode about the ending of Wizard and Glass, and I thought I'd drop you a line and say how much I enjoy the podcast. I've been catching up over the last six months or so, and I'm finally a live listener, which feels great. It is my favorite book of his, probably my favorite book of all time, and I couldn't talk about it all, but I could talk about it all day. And I've really enjoyed your takes on the ones that I really didn't enjoy when I read them, The Tommyknockers, Under the Dome, Dreamcatcher. I'm not saying they've changed my mind, but they certainly made me want to read them again with a different perspective in mind. I really appreciate the way you take on King as a writer and the focus you've had on his books as books. I'm sure you don't want to get into comparisons with other podcasts, but I suspect a lot of people have had their starting point as the films and want to approach King purely as a storyteller or franchise builder. I really like the way your reviews take on the language and structure of his work. Analyzing whether the endings are good in a scientific way as much as that's ever possible was a fantastic idea. A question I've always wanted to ask, I'm assuming, American Stephen King fan, how real, this is, this is a great question what he's about to ask, how real do you find the dialogue uh, from his characters. He's got so many of these slightly cheesy folksy kingisms that are always there in Oh, Aya, and You Bet Your Fur, and Jesus Crow. Well, wish in one hand, shit in the other, see which fills up first. As a foreigner and not a boomer, these sorts of turn of phrases are all alien to me anyway, so it's never been a problem. Do you read King dialogue and think, hey, this is how American people talk? Or do you think, here we are, some more Stephen King dialogue? I was thinking this particularly when I was rereading Crouch End the other day. One of the few, maybe the only, can't think of others right now, of his stories set in the real world but outside of the U.S. Love the story, but the Brit characters and the setting never came across as realistic to me. King's such an American writer and a chronicler, chronicler of the baby boomers that I think Crouch End is actually an interesting one to take him on as dipping a toe into foreign setting. Oh, wait, as I type this, I just remember the Sherlock Holmes story he did, too. Guess that's another non-U.S. one as well. He's doing a parody of a style there, so it's easier to forgive. But while he's going for the Lovecraft vibe in Crouch End, it definitely feels like he's going for a temporary approach to it. Anyway, forgive the long email. It's been a pleasure to unload a few thoughts on someone who's created so much entertainment and obviously so much insight on the topic. Keep up the great work. It's been a pleasure listening. All the best, Tom 
from Oxford, UK. Tom, great question. And the answer is, um, there's not an easy answer to that. So on one hand, there are aspects of the, the folksy dialogue that actually is honest. Um, I have family members, my wife's family is from Maine. Um, and I have heard that type of language directly from the mouths of living people from Maine. Um, so it is the, the aya, and that that aspect of dialect is so on point, so on point. However, I mean, there's little, you know, cute little Stephen King catchphrases um, that are used, those folksy colloquialisms that don't feel authentic, that are stylistic and designed to create the impression of um, a small town uh, vibe, all right, that aren't realistic in its usage, but effective in its implementation, that it creates a sensation, which is the point of fiction. You know, dialogue is not supposed to be um, ultra realistic, because if you just convey dialogue as dialogue is heard, 90% of it is just nonsense. It's just useless, and you have to be able to create the sensation of realism without being too realistic. Um, so King, what King does so well is he creates a stylistic sense of realism, but it is stylistic. So, and that is why when books, I'm oh, sorry, when movies adapt Stephen King works and lift the dialogue, it sounds awful when it's actually implemented in live action um, and, and you're not imagining the characters and the characters are existing on screen before you stating these lines which can sound utterly ridiculous, it doesn't work as well. Um, that's why I think that um, Mike Flanagan is so good because he is able to audio-visually on the screen in his format take the same sensibilities that you like within the Stephen King text and translate it in his own way and then implement and affect you emotionally the way that Stephen King does within his text, except he's able to do it um, on the screen. That's why I really, really like Mike Flanagan. So the answer is a little bit of A, a little bit, a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. All right, anyone, if you have any questions, feel free to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com um, to share all your thoughts, <coughs> um, and we'll take it from there. Okay, everyone, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary of the Song of Susanna so that we have a basis upon which I can build my analysis as we talk about the ending of the Song of Susanna. Taking place mainly in our world, this book picks up where Wolves of the Kala left off with the Katet employing the help of the Manai to help open the magic door inside the doorway cave. The Katet are split up by the magic door, or perhaps Ka, and sent to different wares and whens in order to accomplish several essential goals pertaining to their quest towards the mysterious Dark Tower. Susanna Dean is partially trapped in her own mind by Mia, the former demon and now heavily pregnant mortal woman who had taken control of her body shortly after the final battle in 
wolves of the Kala. Susanna Mia, with their shared body mostly under the control of Mia, escapes to the New York of 1999 via the magic door in the doorway cave with the help of Black 13. Mia tells Susanna she has made a Faustian deal with Richard Sayer to surrender her demonic immortality in exchange for being able to produce a child. Technically speaking, however, this child is the biological descendant of Susanna Dean and the gunslinger Roland. The, gu the gunslinger's seed was passed to Susanna through an elemental, in this case an incubus succubus, who had sex with both. The technical parentage of her child matters little to Mia, though, because the Crimson King has further promised her that she will have sole charge of raising the child Mordred for the first part of his life. The time before the critical destiny the Crimson King foresees for the child comes to pass. All Mia must do now is bring Susanna to the Dixie Pig restaurant to give birth to the child under the care of the Crimson King's men. Jake Oy and Father Callahan father Susanna Mia to the New York City of 1999 in order to save Susanna from the danger Mia has put her in by delivering her into the custody of the Crimson King's henchmen. In addition to the Cotet, I'm sorry, in addition, the Cotet fear the danger posed to Susanna by the child itself. Still unaware of the biological origins of this child, the Cotet believe that it may be demonic in some way and may have the ability to turn on and harm its mother or mothers. While in New York, Jake and Callahan also hide Black 13 in a locker in the World Trade Center. It's implied in the text that Black 13 will be destroyed or forever buried when the towers fall in the September 11, 2001 attacks. While Susanna, Mia, Jake, and Callahan are in New York, Roland and Eddie are sent to the Magic Doorway by the Magic Doorway to Maine in 1977 with the goal of securing the ownership of a vacant lot in New York from its current owner, a man named Calvin Tower. Um, the gunslingers have seen and felt the power of a rose that's located in the vacant lot and suspect it to be some sort of secondary hub to the universe or perhaps an even representation of the Dark Tower itself. The Cotet believe that the tower itself is linked to the rose and will be harmed if the rose is harmed. The reason for this being the Dark Tower and the rose are somehow connected. The two images very similar in the series. Calvin Tower is hiding in Maine from Enrico Balazar's men who have almost succeeded in strong arming him into selling them the lot. Tower has so far resisted with the help of Eddie Dean. Upon their arrival in Maine, the gunslingers find themselves thrown into an ambush by these same men headed by Jack Andalini. Balazar's men were tipped off on Roland and Eddie's potential whereabouts by Mia, who hoped that they would dispense of the people she perceived as threats to her child. Roland and Eddie escape this onslaught with the help of a crafty local man, John Callum, who they deem to be a savior put in their path through the machinations of Ka. After accompanying their primary goal, the deeding of the vacant lot to the Tet Corporation, Roland and Eddie learn of the nearby location of Stephen King's home. They are familiar with the author's name after coming into possession of a copy of his novel Salem's Lot in the Kala, and they decide to pay him a visit. King's presence and his relationship with the Dark Tower caused the very reality surrounding his main town to become thin. Strange creatures called walk-ins begin emerging and plaguing the community. The author is unaware of this and has never seen one, though most of the walk-ins have been appearing on his own street. During their visit to him, the gunslinger hypnotizes King and finds out that King is not a god, but rather a medium for the story of the Dark Tower to transmit itself through. Roland also implants in King the suggestion to restart his efforts in writing the Dark Tower series, which he has abandoned of late, claiming that there are major forces involved that are trying to prevent him from finishing it. 
The Khatat are convinced that the success of their quest depends on somehow on King's writing about it through the story. Meanwhile, in New York, Jake and Father Callahan prepare to launch an assault on the Dixie Pig, where Susanna Mia is being held by the soldiers of the Crimson King. Their discovery of the Scrimshaw Turtle that Susanna has left behind for them gives them a faint hope that they might succeed. Though Jake is filled with a strong sense of dread, and neither Jake nor Callahan particularly expects to leave this place alive. The book ends with Jake and Callahan entering with weapons raised and Susanna Mia about to give birth in Fetic, a town in the thunderclap. As postscriptum, the reader becomes familiar with the diary of Stephen King, the character which encompasses the period from 1977 to 1999. The diary details King's writing of the first four books of the Dark Tower series. It is said that the character, Stephen King, dies on June 19, 1999. Okay. So the ending, normally I would break it down from the climax, falling action and resolution, but because of the very nature of this, uh, I don't even want to call it a novel, um, but because of the nature of what this story is, it doesn't have a traditional climax, falling action and resolution. In actuality, if you combine it with the events of Wolves of the Kala, you can treat Song of Susanna going through the door as a climax. Roland and Eddie finding Stephen King as the falling action and Susanna being wheeled through Dixie Pick uh, as Jake and Callahan prepare to enter. This is the resolution, but even that is a stretch. As I've stated in my review of Song of Susanna, the book, it's not my favorite because it doesn't propel itself forward. It spins in circles. There's a lot of repetition and a lot of telling, not showing. So it's, it's a little uh, non-traditional in its examination of what an ending functions as, but I'll try my best. So I have to ask a couple questions. Criteria for a good ending. Does it provide a, an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? No, because it doesn't conclude anything. Does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, did the events build upon one another with consistency? No, it doesn't wrap up anything. Does the conclusion serve as the literal theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yes. The novel is a literal pregnant pause in the story, so I'll give it some credit there. What is the most famous scene in the novel, and does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Um, and again, as I say each time, this doesn't necessarily mean it's a knock if the answer is no. Um, the most famous scene does not appear. However, if it does, it kind of works in its favor, and I would say that, yeah, the most famous scene probably is King showing up in the novel, which takes place in the end. And that's a massive part in not just this book, not just the Dark Tower series, but all of Stephen King's works. Um, and in years to come, this inclusion is going to be studied and dissected and analyzed and will function as an incredibly significant moment um, of Stephen King's career, I believe. So yes, I would say that this is a big, big part. Are there other factors that we need to consider? Um, with what I just said about Stephen King's inclusion, it's an incredibly divisive decision to include himself as a character into his own story. Personally speaking, um, I am long on record stating that when I first read these books as they came out, I hated it. But I have come to love it. It does not take away from the story in my opinion. In fact, if anything, it strengthens it, it complicates it, it adds more layers of nuance and rich texture, and it makes our characters seem more real. Do I like the ending? I'm going to get to that in a second. Is it a good ending? 
it is hard to qualify any of this as a structured traditional ending. It just ends. But ends with the knowledge of the next book is just a couple months away. So at least when it was first published, when it was when it was first published. Now it's just the preceding chapter before the opening chapter of the Dark Tower. So based on the criteria of what endings are, I can't in good conscience say that this is a good ending. However, I like this stuff with Stephen King, and the imagery of the Dixie Pig is incredible. The dread surrounding the place, the imagery of the setting around it, and the uncertainty surrounding Callahan, Jake, and Oi make for a great cliffhanger. I like those parts. So, let me say this. I like 31 out of 35 endings. And I would say as an ending, eh, like 30 out of 35 endings are good. So... In the next episode, when I discuss The Dark Tower, where it is a definitive ending, we will get into this. But The Song of Susanna is so loose, like I said, it is not, it's not a story. It is a tunnel where on one end it is uh, Wolves of the Kala and on the other end it is uh, The Dark Tower. And this just kind of pushes our characters through the tunnel and sets up what we need um, through very repetitive means. Um, so that is that. All right, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Leave a review if you get a chance on iTunes. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast.